0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. One of the places you might like to go, I'm going to tell you where to go, I think you should go to Lawn. I think you should go to Lawn and check out the Lawn Sculpture Biennale. Joining us to tell us more, curator Lara Nichols. Lara, hello, how are you? Good morning. So... I'm really intrigued by the notion of these kind of outdoor sculpture exhibitions. They seem to be gaining in popularity and because it's a, an opportunity to, to see art outdoors, so you get exercise, you get aesthetic value and you get to see the way artists install work so that it speaks to and responds to the landscape around it rather than just in a white cube in a, in a contemporary art centre. How long have you been involved with the Lawn Sculpture Biennale?
1: Well, this is actually my first um, time as curator of the Lawn Sculpture Biennale, but I was born in Lawn. So I live in Canberra, but um, I was born in Lawn and when the role emerged, I couldn't resist. I had to come and do it because I know that landscape so intimately and feel so passionately about it that I, I wanted to have a go at the very tough problem of inserting sculpture into that magnificent landscape.
0: It must be an intriguing problem to have to deal with in many ways because you, you want work that in some ways, will create a fascinating juxtaposition with the landscape, but in other ways, we'll communicate with it at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's very tough, actually, because there is no... Space is infinite when you're down there. So suddenly things that are normally huge look very small, so the landscape itself and the environment can subsume the work. So it's really tough to place something in that landscape and for it to resonate. Um, So either it looks like a complete anomaly and people go too wild with trying to stand out or it just gets soaked up into the landscape so it's very tough on the artist it's really hard work for them to actually create work which holds its own and actually says something deep and meaningful
0: now it really does seem to be a a growing trend to have these kind of outdoor exhibitions sculpture by the sea which has been running for many iterations now in both uh uh the, the East Coast uh, in New South Wales and the West Coast over in Cottesloe. Uh, there's uh, sculpture, outdoor sculpture exhibitions in the rainforest and the Blue Mountains, for mm. example. Uh, so it's it, it seems to be a bit of a trend in some ways. Is this just because more people are aware of the impact of public art do you think or what is something else going on?
1: So it's a great question um because there, there really has been a huge shift towards outdoor um visual arts activities and it parallels with this complete breakdown of the sort of traditional gallery construct which is what you mentioned before the white cube. So um we have we've grown up going into rarefied mausoleum type Museum environments, which are really um, a vestige of the 19th century past, really, and now um, this has all been rearranged. And people want to engage and immerse themselves in art um, in different environments. So no longer is sculpture, for example, just a classic 3D object on a plinth in space. Um, sculpture is now all media, all immersive, all interactive. Uh, it's just it's changed completely. So. Therefore, the situation that people want to view this kind of work has also changed. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to see this evolution because it's been very rapid in the last 10 years. What do you think has
0: caused such a rapid change?
1: Well, it's a good question too. Um, I suspect technology because technology has allowed us to interact with art in ways that we've never done before. It's actually given us the ability to totally immerse ourselves in art and to engage in a completely different level, whereas previously we would go to a museum and stand a very respectful distance from the works. Now, um, artists want us to often touch works or engage with works and to be part of the installation and interact. In fact, some of the artists at Lawn are wanting us to make the work with them, which is a big shift.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's another part of the digital disruption that's been going on. It's part of that democratisation of mm. the art process in the same way that uh, you can now download music and remix it yourself and upload yeah. it back to the artist's website to show them, hey, look what I did with your song. Thanks for letting me play with it. You can now play with art, as you say, in a very, very different way. It's still got um, a solidity to it uh, and uh, uh, powerful aesthetics. There's still artistic rigour applied to the process. But as you say, it's it the outcome uh, is so much more accessible. Mm.
1: And I think audiences really want to involve themselves in the meaning. They want to drive the meaning as well. So, and that's all come out of actually conceptual art from the 1960s where the concept of the audience became really critical, like this idea that does a work actually exist if I'm not looking at it? And so those kind of thinkings have have driven us into this direction, which is very exciting.
0: Is there also the risk of dumbing down the art for public consumption?
1: Look, there. that is a point, but I think you have to give people credit. You know, if you're a good artist and you give good ideas and you speak a message with your medium in an effective way, people are going to get it. We, you know, we're pretty smart, actually, human beings. <laughs>
0: Now, you've got 41 smart artists involved in the Lawn Sculpture Biennale this year. So, talk us through some of the works that have been created.
1: Well, there's actually 43. Oh. Yes, there's 40 projects and 43 because um, there's some collaborative works as well. So it's a really diverse um, group of work. So getting back to this idea of immersing yourself in art, um, one particular artist from Queensland, Nicole Veverton Cash, has created um, the Monument to the Tree Museum. So that's a fully inflatable space that wraps itself around a tree. And you go into that museum space, and um, it's a bit like being inside a jumping castle, and you are fully immersed in the experience of looking at tree, at a bark, at leaves, at that whole idea of treenness, if you like, and you haven't got any cluttered other material around you, just in this beautiful, pristine interior space. So that's one such work. Um, There's also um, a beautiful garden, which has been created by um, a group of artists associated with Melbourne University. So that's another idea of Community building an artwork, so they've come up with the concept, but the community have actually created this garden over months and months of time, right down from the the. Um, worm mulch man, colin leach um even my mum got in there and nurseried about 50 planter boxes in her garden um, and the school the kindergarten have been making objects for it um, right up to really sort of classic traditional um, sculpture sonia pays has made these remarkable um melding sort of human forms that just emerge out of the sand. Uh, There's a a huge structure made of um, timber offcuts that's in the shape of a house, which has been constructed as you and I are speaking. So there's a very diverse range of material.
0: Talk to us, I mean, the, the, the work you've described, for example, about the, uh, the the Tree Museum is clearly working with the local environment, the local kind of uh, landscape to, re- to create and reflect upon the work. Um, there's another project, I believe, that's part of the festival, Kuta, which is...
1: Kuta look, Memory. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: so, which is uh, tied into the old kind of uh, fishing uh, kind of industry of the, of the region as well.
1: Yeah. So, when I was growing up, Lawn Pier was this very active environment where fishermen actually went out in boats and and fished and there was a fish co-op that people all went to buy their fish from. Um, But things have changed. It's not viable to fish on that scale anymore. And so, you know, multinational fishing culture has taken over I suppose and so the coota boats have completely disappeared. Um, Tony Wolfenden who's a um, UK artist who has been living in Australia since 72 I think it is uh, is a resident in Lawn and he wanted to um, make a work that brings back this idea of the cooter boat and what it what meant culturally. So, in fact, he's worked with the Lawn Men's Shed and it was the Lawn Men's Shed who applied to us to do a work and then they put out the brief and Tony Wolfenden turned up, <laughs> who happened to live in Lawn, to make this remarkable work. So, it's, that's another example of a community-based project.
0: And also a great example of the kind of creative synergies that evolve out of artists who know a local area and are responding to it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think people who have any association with that part of the world, they have strong emotional feelings about it and they they want to um, involve people in in that landscape and that environment.
0: Now, Lara, you said that you uh, are now living in Canberra. So have you been commuting regularly to Lorne or have you temporarily relocated yourself back to the town you grew up in?
1: Well, I, I'm a curator at the National Gallery of Australia, and which has one of the, the best sculpture gardens in the world, may I add. Um, so, I am a curator there and I have been there for five years. So, I commute regularly to Lord. I drive that Hume Highway a lot. I get a lot of ideas driving that highway.
0: That's a, a lot of driving to do. So, yeah.
1: It is a lot of driving. That it, air flights aren't that feasible and um, your yeah, Qantas, if you're listening, <laughs> um, make it more accessible. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of driving. Yeah.
0: Now the Lawn Sculpture Biennale is kicking off this Saturday, the 17th of March and running through until Monday, the 2nd of April, which is uh, Easter Monday. So it's essentially three weekends of opportunities for people to go and kind of, and walk along the coast effectively and interact with, with the artwork as they go. So you get exercise, you you get artistic value, you get fresh sea air. It sounds kind of ideal.
1: It is pretty ideal. It's extremely good for your state of mind.
0: And it's, what, there's a uh, four kilometre track approximately? It's, yeah, it's
1: about four kilometres. Very easy walk though. Um, and you can also drive to and from locations if you had some mobility issues. But the paths are very wide. So you could actually take a wheelchair along them very quite easily.
0: And for people who uh, are thinking of a weekend in Lawn, how long is it going to take them to drive down there?
1: Uh, It's about an hour and 45 minutes, um, depending on which part of Melbourne you're in, because Melbourne is so big. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's not very long. And then you you get there and it's just gorgeous. You know, just beyond the town is wilderness, literally.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's one of those fascinating places where you've got kind of mountains and, and bushland coming down meeting the the coast and the great ocean road and and the the wild ocean as well so that itself i'm sure will have inspired some of the artists as well
1: well it inspired the title for the biennale which is landfall so I decided that the point where we are displaying these sculptures is obviously landfall, that sort of classic maritime term, but I like that word because it suggests um, some sense of collapse and destruction and degradation. And so the whole Biennale is actually themed on environmental issues, which I forgot to mention. Um, so, yeah, the, the, uh, the title Landfall relates to issues around the environment and all of the artists have responded to specific themes uh, um, that are facing the environment today.
0: The Lawn Sculpture Biennale is, as we said, kicking off this Saturday, the 17th of March, running through until Monday the 2nd of April. The sculptures are on display 24 hours a day, seven days a week in public spaces, so there's no charge. You can just go down, walk around, then visit a local kind of cafe or restaurant or pub uh, for a meal and then, uh, I don't know, stay the night and uh, and enjoy yourself and uh, check out... Uh, lawnsculpture.com for more details. Laura Nichols, thank you so much for joining us and uh, coming in for a chat.
1: That's a pleasure. Thank you. We're
0: going to talk Theatre now. I'm joined in the studio by playwright Lachlan Philpot and director Alison Campbell to talk about uh, one of Lachlan's. Well, it's a newly staged production, but it's not necessarily a new play, uh, and which has been described by the playwright as it may be my saddest play, but it's also my favourite play. So, Lachlan, why is it sad, and why is it also your favourite play?
2: Um. Oh, gee, that's a that's a big question, Richard. Um, it's sad because of the material that. It, uh, it, it deals with uh, because it's about a missing person uh, and I guess it's not just about a missing person, it's about the the, the range of emotions that friends and family and loved ones feel uh, in relation to the, the sort of ambiguous loss of the missing person. So, it, uh, so it's about that. It's my favourite play I think um, because of its ambition and because of the, the kind of i guess i describe it as architecture which is probably not a usual word that we use when we're talking about plays particularly when they kind of anything inventive can get stamped out uh, in in you know so so yeah but i think it, it's ambition uh it makes it my favorite play i guess it's also highly personal as well so it's hard to sit through at times but uh yeah. Hard for you to sit through or hard for audiences to sit through? Well, pro- well, look, probably both. I think it's a very different experience. Uh, I mean, every play that in, uh, that I write, and certainly I think this is the same for most playwrights, uh, has, has personal stuff in it that you either hide or cloak or whatever. I think with this one it's very difficult for me to have actually hidden a lot of stuff and it deals with a period in my life that I kind of sit through every night if I go and watch the play, which can be difficult, particularly when... You, you know you're you're subjected to, or you you're not subjected is not the right way when you have a different response from an audience every night that sometimes isn't necessarily in line with how you might be feeling it's very it's not like writing a kind of light comedy where you hope everyone laughs and if they don't you're a little bit you know put out i think if it's a highly personal work then it's something very different
0: Alison, you've been working with Lachlan uh, on and off since the year 2000, so an 18-year experience of his work. What is it about this particular play that made you go, I want to direct this at Red Stitch?
3: Well, actually, you know, it's really fantastic that Red Stitch have come on board with this. Yeah. It, it's a big endeavour to, you know, we know now that, you know, a cast of six is quite a thing um, and it is a very ambitious play and we've been ambitious with the staging. So I'm delighted it's there. And they also were, um, it, was, it was at Red Stitch that Lachlan was a writer in residence when he originally wrote this script. So it's absolutely fantastic. And um, so we did work initially together on the first uh, development of this, but it's taken this long for me to actually... Actually, be able to do it, so I'm that, so I'm immensely grateful for the chance to do it, um, and and I, I laugh because I feel like I've waited what 12 years to do it, and I'm still not quite ready, or I don't feel quite ready. It's very very tricky, as Lachlan says. The architecture, I think, is a great word for it. Um, it, you know the the structure of it is very complicated it's very very complicated. I love that, but it's um so it's a great challenge for actors designers for me and and also it it also demands of the audience quite a lot and i I also really like that because I like to think the audiences will go there and that i I trust them to deal with different performance modes and I think um you know for Lachlin um I I don't want to speak for you, Lachlan, but, you know, it is an an early play before other kind of requirements kick in about, you know, the number of casts that main stage theatres will deal with or all of those sorts of things. So I guess it's one of the places, I think, where you've done what you wanted to do and it's so hugely... um, uh, uh, Inventive in the way that the strands weave together. Even when we stop and look at a scene, sometimes we go, "Oh my god, it's doing all this other stuff that we hadn't realized." Oh, that's from there, because of course it's only at the end of the rehearsal period that you're able to kind of go, "Look at how these things have pulled together. Can we actually convey that in one viewing for an audience?" And that's actually been the task, really. How do you, um, how do you pull it all together in a way that, on one viewing, the audience can? Feel the experience of it and go with the the various different strands and how they overlap.
0: I'm really intrigued by what you're saying because it's uh, A, that notion of um, being formally inventive early in your career before the strictures of Kind of, we want a nice, straight three-act drama, uh, with, for three characters, kind of, or whatever. So, you, but also that because you've both used the term architecture, so I'm, it, it's making me think of something like the Winchester House uh, in the USA, which is a house that just kept being built and built and built. So stairs that lead nowhere, uh, strange corridors, random <laughs> doors, and so forth. So it's clearly not random in that regard, but it, it's clearly then um, formally inventive in terms. Of structure and framing, and how you've approached the the modes of storytelling in the work. Would that be fair to assume?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it is. Um, but yeah, it's, it is. I find it funny to look back at it and kind of. And I wonder if this more generally about uh, emerging writers and how inventive they may be, and how that gets banged out of them in order to kind of create i mean i know it happens a lot in other industries as well but certainly in theater i wonder why it gets banged out of them it always surprises me that uh you know you you, you i f- i feel like you can go and see a text that comes from another country performed really brilliantly in theater company big theater companies in australia but there's no way they would have touched that work had it been written by a local writer and I find that really remarkable and strange. And so I think local writers have to adhere to, certainly in the time that I was emerging, if that's the word you want to use, uh, uh, that, that, you know, if I wanted if I wanted to have an interest from that part of the, the sector, then I had to adhere to more rules. And with this play, I, I, I mean, I think it, uh, of, uh, of it architecturally, it might sound a bit cliche, but I kind of think of it, it's the way that icicles might grow and continue to form and take shapes or that sort of... Yeah, it's, that sounds a bit abstract, doesn't it? Someone else talking
3: I like now. that. You haven't said that before.
2: No, it just occurred to me in, yeah. in here oh, with you oh, and oh. Richard. Yeah, it's marvellous. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Alison, would also be fair to describe it as a queer play?
3: I think absolutely that is so fundamental. We've got, um, so, you know, Lachlan you know, one of the things that people sort of say in terms of this dramaturgical kind of stricture um, is that you can't tell something on stage and Lachlan loves to use this kind of narrative voice that sets the scene up for us and gives us an external world and then pulls us then deep into character internally. And um, what we have um, is with all of these different modes, we have really two strands of... um, that, that, that sit all the way through the work and one is the relationship between a mother and a son and the loss and grief uh, that is in there and the other is the fact that this is uh, a gay man and I feel, we, you know, we've talked to Charles Brissell is playing um, David, this character, and we've talked a lot about him being a queer man who also resists the homonormative as well as the heteronormative. He is resisting the kind of, um, that, that pull towards family, uh, and actually really goes towards, um, you know, anonymous sex and sex in outdoor spaces or different um, modes of sexuality and embraces them. And so that is really the context of this is hugely important. It's not just a man who goes missing. It is a man who is gay and part of that community. And what are the differences in responses from the police if it is a gay man who goes missing? Um, Lachlan writes about, you know, the idea of party leave, that the police sort of go, well, gay men sometimes go off on party leave and, you know, um, so the kind of bureaucratic and legislative, not legislative, but the kind of mechanics around going missing um, and the relationship of that with the context of um, a queer identifying person.
0: Now, Lachlan, you said that this is quite a personal play for you, and I don't want to kind of delve too deeply into painful memories. For example, but you've uh, acknowledged that uh, part of the the narrative is has been influenced by uh, a friend of yours going missing, and the the, the response yeah. to that.
2: Yes, um, Yeah. So, I, has I had a, f- a friend and uh, a close friend and ex. Um, he was also quite a visible part of the um, community. In both, we, we lived together in Melbourne, but then he was in Sydney, and I was in Sydney. He went missing in Sydney, uh, so it's certainly—I mean—the it, it, the, the work is certainly uh, obviously dealing with that what, what happened to him and uh, that period. I think it's, it's also very difficult to um, tell that that story on the stage. I wouldn't—I wouldn't assume the right to do that. So it's based on that or, you know, if you want to say inspired. Then, but I guess also I think what's become more evident to me looking back on the work too is that it also deals with a very kind of uh, intense period of my, my life too because my father had died and I think I was also dealing with a fallout in a relationship with my mother at the time and so I think that also comes into it uh, quite a lot. But it's funny because when I first did it, I, was, I wasn't I was as aware of that as I am now. So it's, yeah, so it's highly personal in in that level and I think also it's like... Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the, the sexual questions that are being asked by that character are certainly things that, that I and probably a lot of other people have asked as well.
0: Yeah. I had an interesting conversation last week when I was over in Adelaide, uh, caught up with um, the artistic director of the State Theatre Company of South Australia. Yeah, he's just Geordie uh, uh, Brookman, who's just directed uh, Patricia Cornelius's kind of main stage debut. Uh, the, the, so now finally we can put that cliche of the the, the 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 playwright who is so awarded but never put on on the main stage. But he commented on the fact that. All playwrights have their obsessions, and those obsessions are reflected and abstracted and manifest in different ways over time. It's only when you look at a collective body of work that you can sometimes see through lines and threads running through. It intrigues me that the notion of, of loss and disappearance and masculinity and queerness is something that you were working on with Calder kind of years ago, 12 years ago, but is also still a current interest of yours as well. The the play Lost Boys that was commissioned by Marigong Theatre Company up in uh, in Wollongong. We're, we're seeing another facet of, of that kind of aspect and interest and passion of yours manifesting there. Um, I guess that's an observation, but to, to turn it into a question, Alison, <coughs>
2: uh,
0: for you as director, having worked with, with him for so long, how sensitive do you have to be uh, in perhaps pointing out things that he, that, that Lachlan himself is not aware of that crop up in his work. How do you deal with those obsessions and interests of a playwright when they manifest again and again over time?
3: Well, it is interesting. I, I do remember when this one, when you first wrote this one and I was looking at the trajectory from Bison, the first play, which we'd worked on together and then, um, it, not your first play, the first one we'd mm-hmm. worked on together and then Catapult, which was also, you know, a gay man, and... Um, thinking about having a child with a lesbian couple and the relationships there and also again there's a very close relationship with the mother a father who is um, dead but present in in that play as well six characters Um, and so those thematics go through but I think one of the things I would say about Colder for instance is that we can go back to the impetus for it but what I've really discovered in rehearsal is that actually because of the because of the the nature of the writing and the visceral impact of it you actually it's not really about empathizing so much well you know absolutely empathizing with this scenario in front of us playing out but I think that you actually cannot avoid going to your own experience of loss it's it's just it will take you there and we can we can't sort of avoid it there's, there's something that will, will touch each of us in terms of, of a loss somewhere, especially around that idea of an ambiguous loss because that might be even a child who leaves home or, you know, what do you become if you're no longer the mother to that child or, you know, all of those sorts of questions. So I think that um, in terms of that long-term uh, investigation of something, I think Lachlan and I have committed together to engaging with queer um Life, uh, mm. what it is to live as a queer person, to navigate the world as a queer person, mm. um, to speak from inside that position, um, to try to find some way to represent it in a different form, and in um, in in dramaturgical ways, in in a way that it's organised that it is also queer, that doesn't follow those particular sets of rules of the mainstream or the normative. So that's, well, it, that's been an endeavour. Yeah,
2: but I mean, I, and I, look, I mean, I think to. Had it not been for Alison, who kind of recognised the 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 work that I was writing originally, I probably wouldn't be writing now because I don't think that there was, you know, I think every uh, every emerging writer certainly needs somebody like Alison who gets their work and who is brave enough to to stage that work. Because look, I mean, at that time there was no one else who was interested in the work. It was kind of people didn't get how it might work on stage, and it's such a revelation to meet a director who goes. I get it and not only do I get it but I want to work on it and then you know, takes takes work and makes it in, into an extraordinary piece of theatre and I think that's why we're still working together after this long um, because we have a really honest relationship but also because I think we really um, dig one another's work in such a great way and I think also I just want to say um, you, you're talking about people's bodies of work I think is so it's so important i mean i think and i think writers have to kind of make sure that we talk about that i mean i think everyone creates their own mythology in the arts as well and i think it's much more interesting to be talking about somebody's body of work than it is about whether they have main stage work or whether you know that i, I think i think we have to change the way that we're looking at uh success or we you know what how do you measure that sort of thing but i think talking about What people are are, are creating in a body of work is something that's actually really tangible and it's much closer to why we make art in the first place. I'm also really intrigued by the fact that you have such a uh,
0: more than a decade of of artistic kind of practice together, which makes for better work, because you are aware of one another's kind of ideas and conversations. You have a shared language, uh, a way to communicate, which a first time director working with a playwright uh, uh, at the first point in their career, Mm. kind of the conversation is going to be so much more awkward and slower to get the ideas together. But you can you can just cut to the chase.
2: Mm. I think it's true. I mean, I also feel like sometimes I have a, I get a reputation of, of being difficult. And I think being difficult is such a hard thing to... It's a hard, it's a hard reputation to shake off. But I think sometimes people confuse being passionate or being certain for being difficult as well. And I think, you know, that, that certainly Alice and I have difficult conversations, but we're very aware of the fact that we're both coming from a similar place but also working towards a place that, you know, we want the work to be as good as it can be. And to, and to make work in that way means that sometimes you have to have difficult conversations. I don't know. I mean, I think Alison, is, I can't speak for myself, but Alison's also, Alison is able to put her ego aside in a way that I think many artists could learn from.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Alison, any thoughts finally on, uh, on, on that history of collaboration and how valuable it is for, for the two of you as artists?
3: Well, I think you probably know Robert Draffin, Druff, Druffin, who said to me uh, a year or so ago that I had something that he, after all the many, many amazing things <clears throat> excuse me, in his career, I had something he didn't have, which was this long, long, intimate collaboration with a writer, which is quite an extraordinary privilege in one's life. So it is, you know, the most important thing in all of the work that I've ever done. You know, this is what sits at the heart of my career. Um And it's led me in all sorts of directions, you know, in terms of my teaching and research. And so I sat in a room at the VCA last week while I stood jumping around probably to the new writers, directors and dramaturgs all in a room together um, and said, you know, I said to the cold is on, you know, it'd be lovely if you come. We'll talk about it in class and look at you all in this room together. And maybe in 20 years, there are going to be little pairings of you. Mm -hmm. And this might be the day in this room that you start one of those conversations. So that was quite a joyful thing.
0: The latest uh, collaboration from the conversation between Lachlan Philpont and Alison Campbell is colder on at Red Stitch Actors Theatre. It's previewing tonight and tomorrow night uh, and then opening on Saturday night. So if you're after cheaper ticks tonight and tomorrow night is the night to go. Uh, the season then runs through until Sunday the 8th of April april uh you can book by calling 95338083 or jumping online www.redstitch.net the theater itself red stitch actors theater is at the rear of two chapel streets in kilda just over the road from the uh astor cinema uh and the play as we said is called colder Alison and lachlan thank you both very much for joining us here at triple r thanks, thanks Richard. very much Richard. Now, we're going to talk Next Wave Festival, which uh, launched its program earlier in the week, the festival running from the 3rd to the 20th of May. It's a biennial festival. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by festival director and CEO Georgie Ma and creative producer Erica McKelman. Welcome to you both.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Richard.
0: Um, I'm going to start with you, Georgie how does Next Wave define itself these days? Back in the day when I worked for Next Wave in 1998-99, it was still very much focused on being a festival, uh, kind of uh, promoting the work of young and emerging artists. Is that still the brief? How has it changed?
5: Well, that's absolutely still at the heart of what we do. Uh, we call ourselves a uh, an organisation that does a lot of different things as well as a festival these days. Um, So we are managing the Brunswick Mechanics Institute and also we run a whole bunch of learning and development and sort of professional development programs for young and emerging artists, but it's all centred on them. It's all really about finding new voices in Australian art, the new generation in Australian art.
0: And not just finding new voices, uh, but also finding voices who are sometimes excluded from... the the mainstream kind of art conversations as well. Would that be fair to say? Uh,
4: Yes, that's totally correct. We've got a really, really great spectrum of artists. Um, There's myself and uh, Hannah Donnelly who are First Nations and we're on staff. Plus we've also got several First Nations artists within the festival and we've had a really good tradition of working with Next Wave and also a lot of culturally and linguistically diverse artists. We love a big, large spread of the snapshot of Australian art.
0: So What is the snapshot of Australian art at the moment? One of the trends that has been really strongly emerging over the last couple of years is a focus on trans and uh, gender-diverse artists, for example. Is that reflected in the Next Wave program?
5: Yeah, absolutely it is. Um, We have an incredible work uh, in development by a collective called Embittered Swish uh, (laughs) that is titled Estrogenesis that will be taking over Brunswick Mechanics Institute. And it's a a really interesting collective of artists, very multidisciplinary. Um, It's very... So Next Wave, in terms of bringing different practices together, we've got a writer, a musician, a director and performers coming together and really bringing a whole bunch of different practices together to explore what it is to be trans, um, to be gender non-binary in this kind of current moment Um, and also kind of giving a kind of sexy, grotesque, (laughs) sci-fi kind of edge to that. Um, So that is definitely going to be a highlight of the program. We've got a number of non-binary artists also involved in in other projects as well. So we think about diversity in its kind of broadest sense in terms of gender, in terms of um, culture, in terms of being with disability or not um, and try try to make sure that we're... That we're showing a, a full spectrum of uh, different types of voices and making sure that the future of Australian art sounds as as diverse as the streets that we that we walk.
0: Yeah, um, one of the things that I also very much associate Next Wave with and have for years is the the, the as you say that mash up of art forms as well. So for many years, Next Wave seems to have been at the forefront of kind of blurring the boundaries and breaking away from that tradition of right here's our performance program and here's our visual art program and here's the text and spoken word and so forth so does it become difficult then to to speak to artists about what you're looking for if what you're looking for is something that can't be defined
4: um i think it's really interesting in terms of our curatorial process because we do a call out through kickstart helix and we're just asking for artists to give us their most ambitious idea and in terms of the format we the way that I tell people um, how we present work we're interested in everything from a black box theatre project all through the spectrum around to white box visual arts hanging on the wall and we love anything that's in between so in terms of our curatorial direction and form we kind of take our cue off the artists so every festival really does shake out as a snapshot of who's investigating different formats and forms, what ideas that they want and then we work with them for 18 months. So yeah we still have things that are very much in between but still it's art and it's fabulous and we're very excited about it.
0: Now one of the works that I'm excited by is Ritual which is I believe what a daily event in the festival so that for each day the festival unfolds people can go to a different place and engage with a different process and different ideas. Tell us a bit more.
4: Um, So Ritual kind of came about when we were looking at the artists that we'd curated in and the journey that they were going on in developing the festival because we work with them for such a long time. And I was looking at what can we do to bring the entire festival together, all of those different forms, all of those different communities that are represented within Next Wave, all of those different worldviews and all of those different disciplines. Um, And when I thought about it a bit more deeply, I realised that all of the artists are really wanting to tackle everything that's happening at the moment. People say that we live in a very divided time. Um, Personally, I don't believe that. I think actually a veil's been lifted and we can see how divided we are now and now we have to deal with this. So ritual is the idea of artist as leader and artist as creative practitioner and artist as person who is conduit for culture. So as an alternative to having a panel discussion or shouting at each other across the internet, we're human beings. We're actually quite good at coming together and doing something quite profound with each other but maybe we need a bit of a reminder of that so rituals designed as a place every sunset for anybody who's within the festival's orbit to come along for free and see have a new experience um it's definitely not something to sit down and spectate it's something that you participate in and hopefully we can kind of crack through that very very intellectual veneer that we like to live in within the arts and yeah bring some
0: soul to it How important is it for a festival like Next Wave to connect people, to connect not just artists and audiences, but the population of Melbourne and the diverse populations of Melbourne who, I mean, people who go to galleries regularly uh, but don't go to the theatre almost never meet theatre practitioners, for example, and the audiences at galleries are different to the audiences at theatres. The audiences who uh, come from the, the western suburbs versus the eastern suburbs are different audiences again can next wave play in the same way that next wave encourages a breaking down of art form boundaries is the 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 programming approach the the very kind of dna of the festival focused on breaking down the boundaries between people
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think that is one of the most important values of art itself is to be able to connect um, and to start conversations. But we do that, uh, we think about that through the programming in some really simple, practical ways. So when you're going to see a theatre show, you're often able to see an exhibition at the same time. We try to program works in close proximity so you can just easily walk from one thing to another or even say at the sub station where we've got some performances, Apocalypsis by Charles Purcell and Zach Pidd or Lady Example by Sloan, Smallland and Son, um, which is a dance work. Um, you can see either of those shows upstairs, but before the show you can see an exhibition by Shireen Tawil um, called Tracing Transcendence, an incredible sort of immersive installation um, based in her work as a coppersmith um, and in a background in Islamic decorative arts, so so you're really able to have quite um, a wide-ranging and broad experience just um, by attending one event at Next Wave, and that's something that we think sets us apart from other types of festivals. That kind of wide range of experiences that you might be able to have um, when you turn up to see turn up um, to see a show or or to see an exhibition.
0: Now, one of the things I really enjoy about festivals is not only diving in and looking at the work and, and having seeing the work of artists whose names I've never heard of before and being exposed to new ideas and new practices and so forth. But I'm also really intrigued by the art of curation itself and how works are programmed in conversation with one another uh, in the same venue or across uh, cities or, or so forth. But even that, that art of curation comes down to even the design of a festival guide or a festival program. So, for example, I've uh, opened the Next Wave uh, festival uh, program program, which uh, is beautifully designed and you can find it in your, your usual cafes, bookshops, etc etc but i've opened it to two works that immediately appear to in some ways to be in conversation with one another as well as with the people who've made the work one of them is looking at uh, the work of two cousins and following them around and it's uh video sculpture and sound on the opposite page you have a conversation between an artist and a fruit picker so bringing people together going on journeys that kind of that idea of kind of i'm um, getting a real sense of the the careful kind of uh, approach to planning and curating and presenting the festival has clearly extended to the brochure itself.
4: Mm. And it is like putting together a big jigsaw puzzle as well. When we're looking at the curation of the festival, we're trying to imagine it in our minds and also to see where an audience can go through the festival and have a particular kind of experience. And I think that conversation that you're perceiving between the artists as well as part of the development process that we have, we bring the Next Wave artists together um, three times for an Intensive. There's quite a large segment of the festival um, went to Bundanon with us in 2017, and we we ate, we talked about work, we bonded. We had other intensives in Melbourne where we all got to meet up um, as we collected more artists coming along. So those um, those artists with those works are also been in conversation for quite a long time, and what you're seeing within the festival is a culmination of that. They're quite a um, a strong cohort. This year, it's been a very, very collegiate experience um, to be a next wave artist in 2018, which has just been wonderful to see and experience.
0: And an important part of the festival's identity, that commitment to not just curating and presenting their work and saying, "Right, we, we, we wash our hands of you; you're done." Where's the next crop of artists we can we can find? It's about making sure that uh, they get grounding and training in all aspects of being an artist as well.
3: Yeah,
5: absolutely. I mean. I've spoken to lots and lots of Next Wave alumni over the years since I started in this role and The main thing that people tell me um, about their experiences as an artist at Next Wave is apart from the sort of the launch pad that it gives for them professionally as many artists go on to sort of national and international touring after they present their work at Next Wave, the main thing really is the community of artists that comes together that is a national community, which is uh, a bit of a rare opportunity, I suppose, for artists at that stage in their careers to really um, build those connections and build those those conversations um, across art forms, across geography, in a way that isn't able to happen in any
4: other festival.
0: Talk to us uh, about some of the other program highlights, Erica, any kind of key works that we we should pick up and discuss.
4: Definitely. Um, I'm super excited about Apocalypsis over at the substation. That's um, Zach Pidd and Charles Purcell will take us through 100 apocalypses in 60 minutes. Can you see if they can do it? Um, Also, I'm very excited about um, Sankova, Love Connection, which is a party that will be hosted and curated by uh, Sister Zyzander over at Arts House um, on Mother's Day Eve within the festival. Um, also super excited about I Am A, which is a exhibition by um, Luke Duncan King, who is a deaf artist and he is showing us his community and the complexity and the um, diversity of it beyond simply being a deaf person. Um, So he's brought in uh, friends of his who are deaf feminists who are activists, who are intellectuals. He'll also be doing an artist talk completely in Auslan. Um, It's up to you whether or not you want to go to the one where actually somebody hearing is going to interpret it for you or you can just try and figure out what's going on. Um, So yeah, I I am also really excited that we're going to be at Abbotsford Convent quite a fair bit, this particular festival. Um, so that's new fertile ground for us to look at.
0: Um, it, the, the festival does always seem to kind of like find and, and like transplant itself and grow into spaces in a really kind of valuable way. There's a, a handy map at the back of the festival guide for example which gives you an idea of just how the, the festival is kind of mapping itself across Melbourne and inserting it <laughs> into kind of different suburbs. So you can easily walk from Black Dot Gallery and to the Brunswick Mechanics Institute in Brunswick, for example. Probably a little bit harder to... Oh, you could you could then jump on your bike and ride to Northcote Town Hall, then down to Darabin Arts Centre and zigzag across to Gertrude Contemporary. So you can kind of... Uh Yeah, wiggle your way around the city on an art adventure as part of Next Wave.
4: Yeah, very excited. I think this is the most north we've been in Preston.
0: Well, it helps having Gertrude Contemporary moving out there from Gertrude Street (laughs) in Fitzroy. We've got a
4: great little um, cluster up there. So uh, Gertrude Contemporary will have Zara Sigilko's exhibition, um, which is examining the use of emotion within politics and whether or not we've actually managed to harness that really, really fundamental energy. And also House of Unholy will be uh, taking you through an experience called SIA in the Darabin Performing Arts Centre, so...
0: And coming back to that notion of reflecting uh, the the streets of our cities and the people who live on those streets, I've noticed there's a couple of works exploring um, kind of uh, diaspora, South Africa, uh, India and so forth as well. So kind of, again, broadening that conversation, not just to talk about... Australian artists in, as if we live in some kind of continental bubble, but kind of recognising that contemporary Australian identity is made made up of a kind of a, uh, a fractal pattern of so many other identities from artists and cultures from around the world.
4: Yeah, definitely. It was one of those really interesting things when we were curating as well, when we did EOIs, we could see really, really strong themes and ideas come out. There is definitely a zeitgeist or a collective unconscious that um, artists are tapping into. A good artist has their antenna on and we'll see these patterns um, Um, reoccurring but yeah it's really been interesting how reckoning with the consequences of colonialism reckoning with the consequences of neoliberalism reckoning with the consequences of war and refugee crises that we're experiencing now in the past have just organically bubbled up within the community in Melbourne and there is a lot of fantastic creatives who are tackling that Um, and we're really really glad to have them in the festival too
0: Georgie, Erica has mentioned some of the, the the key works that have been that she's plucked out. Uh, any any other works that you wanted to acknowledge and reference now?
5: I'm pretty excited to be doing a takeover of the Tote Hotel. Um, we're doing that with Liquid Architecture, and we've got two uh, amazing young DJ curators, um, young women. Programming the whole building for a, a day-long party of performance and music uh, that will kind of activate the spaces in different ways than you're probably used to at the tote. Um, but will really kind of bring kind of new energy, again bringing diverse artists, bringing a lot of female and non-binary artists into that space, and kind of shaking up the the kind of that icon um, with some with some new voices. So I think that will be really really fun
0: and I also love the fact that as well as taking over something like the tote which is already part of kind of like uh, seen as some kind of uh, vanguard or outpost of independent culture you're doing the exact opposite and taking over kind of what the law library at uh, in uh, at the Supreme Court yeah. so it's kind of like you've got this kind of like I don't know the the foundation of serious old Melbourne kind of <laughs> taking that over as well
5: yeah it's really interesting I've been thinking about the sort of the different types of institutions that we're (laughs) engaging with as a festival and looking at the kind of I think there's a lot of sort of criticism or or kind of a lot of um questioning of the the sandstone institutions um and maybe looking at new kinds of institutions of sort of coming together and of finding power and that is often you know like on the dance floor it's often at a party it's often that where they these spaces where there's a sense of freedom a sense of uh real coming together and connectivity and a kind of real power and energy in that um so we're kind of flipping the script on that a little bit this festival um but the the conversations that will be happening around the the law library and um in that precinct as well will be very interesting but at a little bit of a different pace
0: I can imagine. The Next Wave Festival is running from the third until the twentieth of May. You can find out more information at nextwave.org.au, or you can pick up a copy of the very recently printed, mm, fresh printing smell program from uh, kind of bookshops, cafes, uh, a laundromat perhaps uh, around town. So go and uh, pick up the guide, jump online, start planning the the works and experiences and shows and rituals you are going to see as part of Next Wave Festival 2018. Georgie and Erica, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R and have an amazing festival. Thank you, Richard.
5: Thanks for having us.
0: Marissa Karneski is visiting Melbourne from the UK. She's just done a season of uh, over at the Adelaide Fringe and I'm amazed she can actually even string two words together given (laughs) how exhausting that festival is. But she's performing at the Butterfly Club in the city, a show called Dr. Karneski's Incredible Bleeding Woman, which has been described as a menstrual blood-soaked wonder, Um, uh, uh, incredible, inspiring and wonderful. Uh, And I'm... Intrigued to learn more about the pro, the uh, performance, Marissa. Welcome to Triple R.
6: Hello. Thank you very much for having me. So,
0: Dr. Karneski's incredible bleeding woman. I've been re- doing a little bit of reading about it and it's been described as part performance, part lecture, part ritual, part evocation, part demystification, uh, and it's all about the menstrual cycle.
6: Yes. So, it was born out of me doing an actual doctorate of philosophy a practice as research practical phd um i come from a background of theater and live art and cabaret i'm one of these artists that likes to do everything (laughs) i can't decide on one genre i'm just going to do them all at once um so i wanted to research um Menstrual activism, menstrual rituals, the whole area of menstruation in mythology. So my area is not exploring the medical processes of menstruation or revealing um what your bodies go through or how your hormones change and there's some amazing work out there that is looking at these things but my work is to look at all the hidden and lost mythological stories and fairy tales and characters and menstruation's representation in popular culture in horror movies particularly which is one of my favorites um and then to look at what's happening today in activism in feminism um so i come on as a kind of bizarre aunt flo character i, I like to think i'm a little bit like andora in bewitched but um <laughs> as a menstrual funny lecturer so um i do a very formal lecture about the lost representation and mythology of menstruation which then starts to get a bit weird and surreal and david lynchy and horrory and bloody.
0: Sounds fantastic. <laughs> now, you mentioned horror movies, for example, uh, and the film that immediately sprung to mind for me is Ginger Snaps, kind oh. of a, a feminist werewolf film in which kind of the onset of puberty and uh, and uh, the, the menstrual cycle linked to the full moon and, to, and werewolves and so forth. So the, you've clearly got an enormous and rich back catalogue of myths and legend and stories to draw upon is the challenge with a show like this about what to leave out.
6: Absolutely, and I am a bit of a I call it a menstrual gesumptenswerk in that I can't decide what to leave out. There's a lot in it and I pack a lot into the one hour. What was that word again? Gesumptenswerk, which it means an art form with everything in it. Um, You know, because people say, what are you? Are you cabaret? Are you live art? Are you theatre? And this this has been the bane of my professional career is I'm like... Well, um, so I've come up with a term and I'm a, well, because Umtonsfog is an old term, uh, German I'm assuming, um, but I'm a show woman, So I'm not a showman, I'm not a show girl. I'm a showwoman in that if you see a great magician, you would say, what a great showman, or you'd think that Barnum was a great showman. Uh, I like to think I'm a great show woman, but I'm, I'm an arts practitioner. So it's, it's very arty. It's quite conceptual because part of the other thing about the show that is exciting is that I did an experiment um, with some extraordinary performance and cabaret artists from the UK. I don't have them with me, but I've got amazing art house horror movies of them doing their menstrual rituals. So we met not on the full moon, but like, at, the
0: dark, the, at moon. the dark
6: of the moon. And that's based on some research around the traditional human menstrual rituals and how. Uh, When women would go into seclusion in traditional human cultures. And um, so we go on the dark of the moon, and that's what, that's the research that I was looking at. And we make menstrual rituals, and we made them in a in a tacky seaside town in the UK because that was... (laughs) We couldn't get some kind of place in the wilds in a forest. So we went to a and b &B in the seaside. No, we we went to an art centre gave us some space uh, in Southend, which is very grey and rainy. But we made these... We remade these kind of... Occulty, feministy, queerish w- rituals around menstruation using our skills as performance artists and cabaret artists, and I have amazing films of the women in the group showing their menstrual rituals, and I do my menstrual rituals. Um, but then the show ends up quite interesting because going from quite a camp and ridiculous comedy character, it starts to become confessional in a way and i tell the women's stories with films of them when we do it with lots of them they tell their own stories um and we tell the real stories of what happened to us by because it, some magic was involved you know when you perform menstrual rituals which we don't really in our culture uh, every month things happen that's all i'm gonna say you have to come to the show to find out what happens
0: now, from a male perspective, one of the things that fascinates me about this show is living in in a Western culture like Australia. the the kind of shame and the taboo and kind of and the whispering and so forth that goes on. and kind of like it's often been joked that if if men had menstrual cycles, we'd be joking about it down the pub kind of every month. So that the notion of something that for some people might be confronting or shocking or taboo, kind of like literally. Uh, shall we say airing your dirty linen in public? Kind of um, to to reference the kind of the kind of hanging out the bloody sheets after a woman was deflowered, kind of uh, in the Middle Ages or whatever. That notion of reclaiming what was uh, a great. Uh, place of storytelling and culture and myth and giving that love and respect and public recognition again that fascinates me
6: oh thank you i'm glad you think so <laughs> because i think so too and um it's amazing to think that in our culture that we're living in in our western culture where um we have feminism and we've had it for many years a 100 in fact and um you know uh the menstruation that happens to So many people is still so taboo. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and there was a lot of shame around the menstrual cycle and there's so such little uh, cultural representation of it, which is shocking. So when I went to research this and to find you know, art and TV series and films and music, there's hardly anything out there. There's there's not that much out there. And certainly the representations are not necessarily positive. So, you know, if we look at a uh, Carrie is obviously a genius novel and a genius film, but we still associating um, menstruation with, um, you know, demonic, Uh, powers and um, uh, women being uh, kind of subjugated and pushed into a corner for their power and so it's it's a very clever film because it reveals a lot of the taboos around menstruation but in a sense uh, you know that era of films like The Exorcist and The Poltergeist and, and Carrie also reinforce the idea that menstruation is dirty and demonic. Uh, or, or, I mean, I think Carrie explores that it's not, but you know, she then embodies the witch to fight her uh, enemies. So, um, you know, it, it's a it's a very rich area, and and it's an area that's bit more explored in horror. <laughs> and the fact is that, you know, myths and fairy tales and, and blood are thought of as horrific, but, of course, menstruation is not horrific. It is a fact of life. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Just
0: so. the fact that it, it's kind of that myth of the monstrous feminine, uh, which kind of crops up time and time again, embodying male fear.
6: Yes. Well, you know, the, the, the vagina dentata.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but Have you seen the horror film Teeth? No. Ah, it's a it's a vagina dentata I've, kind of kind of reclamation film. Uh, it's fantastic. Definitely worth a look.
6: I have to look at that. I mean, we look at in the show. I talk about. I used show some images from Suspiria, the Dario Argento movie. With you know, so pe- a lot of what's interesting about this show is that people think, oh, it's only going to be interesting for women. It's actually really interesting for horror for people into horror, which is usually a lot of men <laughs> because I'm a real horror nerd. So um, we look at menstruation from that perspective. Um, and one of the films I look at and the images I show is Possession, which was uh, Isabella Agiani in 1981, Andre Zulaski, And uh, that oh, has the, one of blood the... blood
0: and milk. Yes. Yeah,
6: it has one of the only scenes in cinema of miscarriage. It's a, it's a really rare, bizarre film. And it was kind of thought of as a video nasty, but it's... You could say it's a kind of feminist classic in a way, but, mm. uh, you know, there's always two ways to read something. But um, what else can I tell you about the show? Uh, yeah, it's 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 extraordinary because it was a real research project, but at the same time, it's tongue-in-cheek. And um, so it's humorous, but it's also does show some uh, real information about what happened to us by taking this experiment. We made these these menstrual rituals for 9 months we met in the dark of the moon and we made these pieces and and those pieces are revealed
0: Sounds fantastic. The the production is Dr. Karneski's Incredible Bleeding Woman. It's on from tonight, Thursday the fifteenth through until Sunday the eighteenth, uh, at the Butterfly Club in Carson Place off Little Collins Street in the heart of the CBD, just around the corner from the Melbourne Town Hall. You can book by going to the uh, and performances are 830 p.m. every night, tonight, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Tickets are thirty-four bucks, thirty concession, and if you're a member of the Butterfly Club or you have a group of six and more friends, tickets are $27. So the thebutterflyclub.com for more details to check out Marissa Karneski's Dr. Karneski's Incredible Bleeding Woman. Marissa, it's been an absolute pleasure having yes, you on the program. thank you.
6: I've really enjoyed myself.
0: <laughs> this has been a podcast oh. from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent
2: community radio.